Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, a promising road ahead for innovation at the Defense Department. The six different pathways in the acquisition framework, the AAF, uh, really offer fantastic tools to program managers to do things differently. One congressman says funding FedRAMP should be an easy call. A $20 million appropriation for this program that could be the hinge for all cloud computing services for the federal government is a modest and wise investment. The gravity of the IT problem at the Office of Personnel Management is everyone's problem. IT undergirds everything, not only for OBM, but for every federal agency. So OBM is not unique in being challenged in antiquated IT systems. And Jerry Connolly's remote work environment is for the birds. I uh, have a parrot, his name is John Adams, and when he hears me downstairs talking like this, he gets all excited. It's Thursday, December 16th, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Defense Information Systems Agency is ending the MillCloud 2.0 program. Both DISA and the contractor General Dynamics Information Technology say the agency won't renew the contract when it expires in June. A DISA official tells FedScoop the agency will, quote, aggressively work with our industry and mission partners to migrate customers to commercial cloud or another viable environment prior to the sunset date. The Air Force has a new Chief Information Security Officer. Aaron Bishop will take over from Wanda Jones-Heath. Bishop is the founder and former CEO of the Quantum Security Alliance and former Chief Information Security Officer at SAIC. He's been with the Air Force since November. Jones-Heath is now the Air Force's Principal Cybersecurity Advisor. A bill to codify FedRAMP at the General Services Administration is out of the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee and headed to the Senate floor. Dave Nitschpeer is writing about the bill at FedScoop.com. Dave, welcome. Thanks for coming on. This is similar, if not the same, as what Congressman Jerry Connolly has been proposing for a number of years, isn't it? Welcome. Yes, it's very similar. Um, Only a few names of of the board that's being created and also timeframes have been changed. It seems like a little bit of a branding thing on the Senate's part to kind of make this more of their bill than a House bill. Um, But uh, yeah, uh, very familiar to us who've been following this a while. Uh, Congressman Conley is going to be on the Daily Scoop podcast later in the program to talk about this bill. What is the next step for this? You write in your story, it's headed to the Senate floor. Do we have any time frame for consideration on the floor? We're almost at the end of the year. And I imagine the fear is that it might get put off for a while. Yeah, that is the concern. I haven't heard anything in terms of a time frame, but I will say that I know that, uh, and I've spoken to Jerry as well, he told me at one point that uh, it's very similar language-wise to an amendment that was made to the NDAA. So it's very possible we could see it roped into the NDAA. What is encouraging for folks who would like this bill to pass, it appears, is that it is very bipartisan. People from not just both parties, but all across the ideological spectrum are supporting this bill. Uh, You reference uh, Senator Peters, the chairman of the committee, Senator Portman, the ranking member. Uh, You have a quote in your story from Senator Maggie Hassan, Democrat from New Hampshire. And you also reference uh, Senator Hawley from Missouri and Senator Daines from Montana. That's usually a good sign that something like this is on the right track for passage, isn't it? 
Yeah, I think that uh, you've definitely seen a big push. I think also because there's such a huge cybersecurity component to all this, the idea of continuously monitoring cloud solutions at a time when we've seen a a lot of high-profile hacks in the last year, uh, it's definitely on the mind of senators on both sides of the aisle. Thanks, Dave. More on the bill with Jerry Connolly in a minute. And you can read more about all of these headlines and lots of other stories at fedscoop.com. It's not too early now to plan for IT Mod Week. It's coming February 28th through March 4th. More than 100 events will happen around D.C. with lots of government and industry speakers. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The new National Defense Authorization Act lets the Pentagon spend $770 billion this fiscal year. The total is $25 billion more than the Biden administration asked for, and it continues a trend of more spending for the department. Cynthia Cooks, director of the Defense Industrial Initiatives Group at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Cynthia, welcome you and your colleagues taking a look at acquisition trends from the fiscal year that just ended recently. What do you take away broadly before we get into the specific questions that you and your team asked and answered. Welcome. Well, pretty broadly, it's clear that the department is in a period of growth, and this can be linked to concerns about uh, new and increasing threats across the world. So that's um, fundamental to what we're seeing today. The uh, rebounding that you're seeing in contracting, you write, defense contract obligations grew to $421.3 billion in fiscal 2020. That's a 41% increase since, uh, as you write, DOD contract spending bottomed out in fiscal 2015 because of budget caps and cuts to deployments overseas. Where's that money going? Is it goods? Is it services? And where are those goods and services directed? Well, we see that the greater increase in spending is going to goods, although services are increasing too. And that's really linked to a fundamental story that when the budget increases, purchases go up. Budget increases may be specifically linked to recapitalization projects, with ten- which tend to be expensive. But it's a bit of a chicken and an egg problem where it's not clear if spending on programs goes up because the budget increases or the budget increases because Congress has agreed that it's necessary to spend more on programs. When the budget goes down like it did in, uh, during sequestration, it's a bit of a different story. During downtimes, it's easier to renegotiate or reduce contract spending, for example, by reducing spending in the current years and extending the schedule of the program than it is to cut the civilian workforce. The downside of this is that it extends the time before the warfighter can get new capability. On the other hand, DOD needs to protect its civilian workforce, and it's limited in uh, the alternatives that it has there. So cutting contracts is probably the right thing to do because human capital in the department can be very difficult to get back once it's lost. DOD doesn't want to lose expert program managers or, or cyber professionals to industry because they may never get them back. So when we see budget in cuts, it's generally to programs, and that means budget increases can be more heavily weighted on programs, too, as Congress tries to make up for the reduced spending in the previous years. Your team's writing about one of the major shifts that we've talked about on this program extensively and in the other projects that I've done over time, and that is the efforts to reform 
defense acquisition. Uh, and you write, uh, they've continued to emphasize flexibility, innovation, and access to commercial technological advances, referencing DIU, uh, other transaction authorities, and some of the other innovative approaches that various organizations in DOD are taking. How is that affecting the overall trend line that you and your colleagues are seeing in contracting, Cynthia? I'm not sure that the flexibility and improvement in different approaches is directly tied to an increase or reduction in contracts. What it does is enables the Department of Defense to be more effective in how it makes its purchases. The six different pathways in the acquisition framework, the AAF, uh, really offer uh, fantastic tools to program managers to do things differently. Now, that kind of tailoring was always possible in the DOD 5000, but it was very difficult for program managers to do. So this kind of creates these uh, pre-constructed pathways to go down, especially with the urgent, uh, the Yuan, the, the urgent capability acquisition and the uh, middle tier acquisition. These are directly linked towards speeding things up. If you look at the big picture numbers, it looks like of the department spending, it does look like that spending on R&D has gone down a bit, but there's been a tremendous increase in the spending on OTAs or other transactions authorities, which aren't captured in those budget numbers. Those OTAs are specifically designed to try to bring in non-traditional defense suppliers, which may offer new kinds of innovation to the department. So there is really a story about the department trying to invest in innovative capabilities to bring to the warfighter. Another trend that you and your colleagues identified is a big growth in Navy spending shifting from the other services. But if I'm reading this correctly, it looks like part of that at least can be attributed just to a bookkeeping uh, function. You write, uh, Navy has seen the greatest growth in spending increase 20% from FY19 to FY20, 62% since FY2015. But you write, this is partially explained by FPDS treating the Navy as the purchasing service for all F-35 obligations. And then you reference the ships and submarines uh, where spending has increased. But that one thing seems to make kind of skew the numbers, at least according to the figure that's in your work. Am I looking at it the right way? Uh, you are looking at it absolutely the right way. It does look like the Navy is growing. But I want to put in a really important caveat to that, which is that when we look at the budget data, we see what's available to the public. There may be classified programs that there are classified programs that aren't captured here. For example, the B-21 bomber, the new stealth bomber. Uh, the next generation air dominance aircraft. And we also can infer that there's space programs that aren't included in the public numbers. So it's not clear how the Air Force is doing. The Air Force does have a larger portion of the classified spend. So we can't really make any kind of final statement about the balance among the services based on the public numbers. I appreciate how you and your colleagues have presented this material, Cynthia, in a kind of a Q&A format. And the last question that you ask is, and then then answer is, what comes next for defense acquisition? So I'll make that my last question, too. What comes next for defense acquisition, Cynthia? We're waiting to see what the new national defense strategy looks like. 
we can assume that it's going to continue to put an emphasis an emphasis on investments in advanced technology, in particular to counter potential adversaries that are making similar investments, for example, China. So the type of investments that we can um, predict include things that support the pivot to the Pacific, uh, long range capabilities and so forth. So that's what we expect to see going forward. We also will expect that some of these investments will not be available to the public to see in great detail because uh, they'll be on the classified accounts. Cynthia Cook of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thanks for joining me today. Great to have you on the program. Thanks, Francis. You can find a link to the work Cynthia's team did on defense acquisition in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Coming February 8th, it's the Delivering Better Outcomes Through Automation event FedScoop's putting on. It's at the Ritz-Carlton West End in D.C. from 8.30 to 3. You'll learn how agencies are adopting automation to build capacity, efficiency, and accuracy to deliver better outcomes. You can read more about it and register through the link in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. That bill to codify FedRAMP will go to the Senate floor. That bill will provide a funding stream for FedRAMP. The Senate passes it. President Biden signs it into law. Congressman Jerry Connolly is chairman of the House Oversight and Reform Subcommittee on Government Operations. Congressman Connolly, welcome to the program. It's great to have you on and great to talk to you again. I will forgive you if this bill that comes out of the HISGAC sounds very, very familiar to you, doesn't it, Congressman? Welcome. Yes, it does. It's a belated but welcome Senate companion bill to the FedRAMP legislation I've introduced in the last three Congresses and that has passed the House with bipartisan support four times. What is in there, sir, and what difference will it make to the way the General Services Administration delivers on FedRAMP, the way that companies that seek to be approved for FedRAMP do so, and the way that agencies consume FedRAMP and use it to their benefit? So, I think the first thing, Francis, is it codifies the program in law. Uh, FedRAMP was created by executive fiat back in 2011, but it has no, it's an orphan, right? It, it doesn't have any standing in law, which means a president could come along and abolish the program tomorrow if he or she wished. So we want to codify that program so that we, uh, we have that legislative standing and stability for the FedRAMP program which as you know, certifies private sector companies that want to do business with and for the federal government in cloud computing. It reduces duplication uh, of security assessments by saying that if you already have been certified in one of the windows of the federal government through FedRAMP, you don't need to start the process all over again to go to a different window. And we create a standard in law called the presumption of adequacy. So once you get approved, there's a presumption of adequacy, you should be certified by everybody. There might be specific requirements for a specific agency or division, but that should not mean that you start all over again, which right now does happen, adding lots of time and lots of cost to a program that was originally supposed to be a streamlined way of being certified at an average cost of about a quarter of a million dollars over six months. Well, we have examples of people who have spent millions of dollars over years. Uh, and so we, we're trying to address that and streamline the program. 
Um, we want to facilitate agency reuse of cloud technologies that have already received authorization to operate by requiring agencies to check a centralized and secure repository. Um, we want to require that GSA work toward automating uh, its processes, leading to more standard security assessments and continuous monitoring cloud offerings. We want to establish a federal secure cloud advisory committee to ensure a dialogue among GSA agency cybersecurity and procurement officials and industry representatives. And finally, authorize $20 million in annual appropriations for the program itself. So that's what the bill does. It's not particularly complicated. It's got broad bipartisan support. I'm very gratified that the ranking member of the full committee, uh, Mr. Comer of Kentucky, a Republican, ha is my co-sponsor. And in previous Congresses, I might add, a name that might be familiar, Mark Meadows was my co-sponsor. Uh, so this is not a particularly controversial and certainly not a partisan issue. Uh, we've been very frustrated with the Senate. Uh, we were that close, you know, to getting this into law last year in the National Defense Authorization Act, only to have uh, Senator Ron Johnson with no explanation, no dialogue, uh, no no rhyme or reason, simply kill it. Um, and uh, and this year, unfortunately, same thing. We came really close. We had an agreed to text. And uh, Senator Portman, the ranking member of our counterpart committee in the Senate, decided the last minute to link it with a bill that was unrelated, that had no standing, had not been considered in the House at all, and killed FedRAMP in the NDAA again. So I welcome the fact that the Senate has now marked up and reported out a companion bill. And our hope is the Senate will keep its commitment and replace the S number with the HR number, the House number, since we have ownership of this issue. We've been, been working on it for five long years, and uh, we'd like to see it come to fruition and become law. Jerry, I'm not as young as I used to be, so I'm going to try to pull information out of the memory banks from 2011. When Dave McClure and Kathy Conrad came on my program on Federal News Radio in 2011 and talked about establishing the FedRAMP program at the very beginnings of it at GSA, I recall that conversation revolving around a lot of the same concepts that you have incorporated into this bill 10 years later. Um, the idea that FedRAMP was supposed to be a foundation or a floor on which agencies could build but didn't have to. The idea was that this was supposed to be an authority that could be used over and over and over again. If agency A uh, as agreed that this was sufficient for their standards, that agency B should be able to also draw on that. It sounds like you're really going back to basics here. Am I reading this? Am I hearing this correctly? I think that's right, Francis. I think we're trying to return the program to its root, its origins which was to open entry to lots of firms, uh, not to have it dominated by a couple of big guys, uh, and to streamline the process of approval so that people could be certified in an expeditious manner and relatively low cost. And none of that happened. Uh, there have been improvements, but that's why we decided it needed a legislative fix. And that was the intent behind this legislation and still is. What are the improvements that you have seen over time in the FedRAMP program? Have you had any number of hearings about this? And I know you talk to people behind the scenes all the time. What do you like about the trend line in general, although you still believe the legislation is necessary, Jerry? Um, we have definitely seen an improvement in the approval time. 
Uh, we've seen a better communication with companies in terms of status. We've seen costs come down, but it's still not where it needs to be. And there are still examples we hear of that are kind of horror stories. You know, we spent four, five, six million dollars. We're still waiting. We don't know what our status is. Uh, and of course, this duplication problem really is vexing. I mean, the idea that, say, the Pentagon approves you, but HUD does not, you've got to start all over again as if, uh, for, you know, de novo, as if you have no standing at all. Uh, I, I just think it's crazy. And uh, that's a very bureaucratic kind of mentality. I understand agencies wanting to protect themselves and make sure their needs are, are met uh, very specifically. But that doesn't mean you have to force somebody to start the process all over again. And that's why I think this the standard of presumption of adequacy is so important. Actually, putting that language in the law uh, directs agencies to respect that uh, and gives companies an appeal they don't currently have. So um, I, I, I'm confident that between the reforms being made and that have been made at GSA and this legislation, we can return the program to what it was supposed to be back in 2011. Final thought about FedRAMP, uh, Mr. Chairman, and that is, it seems to me, everybody always says, watch the money. And so it strikes me that the appropriation or the, the authorization of money to go to the FedRAMP program is maybe the most important message behind it, saying, especially to industry, this isn't going away. This is something that we intend for you to, to want to be aware of and think about and work through for the foreseeable future. Is that fair? I think that's fair. Uh, and, and it would certainly be my hope that Congress would follow through with the uh, appropriate uh, appropriation, uh, commensurate with the authorization contained in the legislation. Um, you know, we've passed over $6 trillion in COVID relief funding in the last year plus. So frankly, a $20 million appropriation for this program that could be the hinge for all cloud computing services for the federal government is a modest and wise investment in the future. You can read my colleague Dave Nitschapier's story about the FedRAMP bill in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. More with Congressman Connolly in a moment. First, though, a reminder that the lineup for the Daily Scoop podcast between now and the holidays is ramping up big time. Tomorrow, the Army Chief Information Officer Raj Iyer is here. And Monday, a double shot. The new administrator of the U.S. Digital Service, Mina Shung, and the Chief Information Officer of the United States, Claire Martirana, here on the Daily Scoop podcast. Claire and Mina will tell you how they're helping agencies execute on President Biden executive order on customer experience in government that daily scoop podcast debuts monday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows all right back to congressman jerry Connolly. jerry thanks for uh, continuing the conversation i know you're not much for victory laps but i would forgive you if you uh, took one when the senate uh, i imagine will pass this bill it appears to be on that trajectory I offered Terry Girton of the National Academy of Public Administration a victory lap when she was on the program not too long ago because you have another bill about uh, the Office of Personnel Management. And it appears to me, I told Terry, that you basically took the recommendations that her team made and wrote them into a bill. 
And, right. and okay, so you just answered my first question, Jerry. Do I have that right? That you do have that right. And I, I think, Francis, we got to go back in time to the Trump administration. And there was a very ill-fated, ill-conceived uh, attempt to abolish the HR agency of the federal government, namely the Office of Personnel Management. You know, in the Office of Personnel Management resides, you know, security clearance applications, job applications, personal data, uh, as well as the management, for example, of the largest healthcare system, insurance system in the world, you know, the Federal Health Employee Health Benefit Program, uh, pensions, benefits, work rules, uh, you know, telework policy. I mean, OPM is the HR agency for the federal government. To abolish that agency and distribute its functions to other agencies, including GSA, whose function is primarily, right, the management of buildings and leases and, uh, you know, uh, federal workplace uh, physical requirements, um, was to me a ridiculous and dangerous uh, kind of idea, and they, they pursued it. We were very successful, even though I was in the minority in those days, but we were successful in um, raising uh, the flag about that and in proving that it had no legal basis, it, it was not thought through, um, and, uh, and that in fact it would do a lot of harm, and that Congress had a right, you know, if you want to abolish a federal agency, you got to come to Congress for its consent. You don't, you don't get to do that unilaterally. And I insisted on that point, and when they asserted otherwise, I said, well, I want to see the legal opinion that tells you you can do that without congressional consent. And they sent a one-page legal document that was entirely redacted. There was not a single word available to us to read, <laughs> which I thought kind of made our case. If you're that confident in your legal reasoning to abolish OPM, let us know. Okay, so along comes the Napa report that actually goes the other direction, right? Here's how to strengthen OPM. Here's how to make it a viable, robust 21st century HR agency that serves the federal workforce and federal retirees. And so uh, I wrote a bill that reflected most of the recommendations in that report. And if I can, Francis, I'll just real quickly, it clarifies OPM's mission as the center of the federal government's civilian HR. It requires that candidates as director of OPM uh, are selected without regard to partisan politics, political affiliation, and that they have some kind of human capital and leadership credentials uh, to qualify for that nomination. It ensures the agency's chief management officer is a career civil servant to provide continuity and stability uh, and backstop that what is political appointee. And it creates a federal advisory committee to help the director better under, understand stakeholder needs, concerns, and ideas. And, uh, you know, it's been widely endorsed already, even though it's a relatively new bill, National Federation of Federal Employees, International Feder uh, Federal uh, Professional and Technical Engineers, National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association, NARF, the Public uh, Partnership for Public Service, among others. So, and I'm, you know, it's got bipartisan support, Brian, 
Republican Brian Fitzpatrick of uh, Pennsylvania is my co-sponsor um, uh, of this legislation. And I'm also glad to have Carolyn Maloney, chairman of our full committee, as an original co-sponsor as well. So we think it makes good sense. It was marked up by our committee, reported out. Um, Republicans of the committee balked uh, under the, uh, I think, specious argument that this is an unnecessary intrusion on the prerogatives of the executive. You know, it's just a false argument. There are all kinds of jobs in the federal family, right, that have conditions put upon them in terms of the credentials we want in a director, right? There are, there are conditions for appointing someone to the FDA. There are conditions in appointing someone to NIH or CDC or NASA, uh, you know, on and on. So it's not at all unique to this bill that we would say, hey, if you're going to nominate someone to run HR for the federal government, that person should have some credentials in HR. So we all have confidence professionally that that person can do the job. Isn't it logical, though, that that person will be chosen with some level of political consideration? I imagine a Democratic or Republican administration would want to choose an OPM director who has at least had some experience in the nature of that party. Although, for example, Jeff Pond selected as OPM director by the Trump administration is a former federal agency chief human capital officer. So one would think that qualifies as somebody, although he was chosen with at least some political consideration. I sure. Imagine. And he, listen, it remains, you know, in the purview of the president to appoint the OPM director. Our bill doesn't change that. It circumscribes it professionally a little bit. Uh, but ultimately, every appointment by the president is political. Uh, and we wouldn't deny any president that right. But we also think the country and the federal workforce are entitled to somebody who's qualified. The other issue that I'm curious about, you made your case about uh, the status of the General Services Administration. And you and I talked about that on television, on Government Matters when you were on, and, and this issue first came up two or three years ago. But it strikes me, nobody would deny that the information technology landscape at OPM has been challenging for a long time. We went back to 2015 uh, with the breach there and so on. Um, and we're in a unique situation, I think, at OPM because the CIO there, Guy Cavallo, has a lot of experience at revitalizing an IT plant as he did at SBA. Um, he worked with Maria Rote, who's now the deputy CIO. Claire Martirano was the CIO before Guy was, and she's the federal CIO now. Is there a role for some organization outside of OPM to help OPM, to help Guy and his team really beef up the information technology uh, plant at OPM, which I think was part of what the previous administration was going for, maybe not moving that function to GSA, where their technology plant is more robust, but at least helping to get OPM on, on a better track? Um, I think any help would be welcome. As you know, Francis, I've made all, you know, almost 14 years of my tenure in Congress uh, about a, a good government agenda, uh, trying to make the government more nimble, more effective, more robust, more constituent customer service oriented, uh, more effective. 
And IT is absolutely critical to that. IT undergirds everything, not only for OPM, but for every federal agency. So OPM is not unique in being challenged in antiquated IT systems, uh, issues of intercommunication interoperability with their systems, the need to encrypt those systems, the need to stay ahead of the technology curve uh, and upgrading their technical skills and technical personnel, uh, which gets to recruitment and retention, right? Um, And they need to make some serious investments, no question about it. And I've talked to the OPM director uh, about that. Uh, And and that's what our Patara legislation is all about, right? Creating architecture for you to upgrade, uh, modernize uh, IT and to integrate IT into the mission. One of the problems we've had kind of historically is it always kind of falls in priority investment as, as agency heads, you know, have brief tenures. You know, the average tenure of a political appointee is what, 18 months? How much investment, political investment, do you want to make in a multi-year, multi-billion dollar upgrade to your entire IT system? And all too often, the answer is not much. Mm-hmm. I've got, you know, that's not the mark I want to make. I want to make my mark in the policy realm. And that's understandable. But what we're trying to get into people's mindset is, but the IT is integral to your success in the policy realm. If you have a faulty IT that cannot deliver, uh, the mission will fail. We saw that as a warning sign, right, when the uh, website for the Affordable Care Act was unveiled uh, and it collapsed. And all of a sudden there were stories about maybe the Affordable Care Act was just going to go away and collapse, right? That's how integral everybody else understood the technology, the IT system to be to the mission. So trying to make sure that we get policy wonks understanding that IT investments are not nice to do or, yeah, when I get around to it. They're integral to your success as a manager and to the mission of the agency. Have you ever thought about making uh, or suggesting that uh, OPM's director job become a term appointment where the OPM director serves for five years and crosses administrations and and that kind of thing, the FBI director, similar to that, that kind of thing? That may be something we should take into consideration, but I I think given the sensitivity of how far do you go, in circumscribing the ability of the executive to put his or her team into place um, is such that I think uh, having that discussion right now in this environment would probably not go very far. Uh, I mean, get the fact that I, I simply want to say, hey, whoever you nominate, you can nominate anyone you want, ought to have some background and credentials. And that's considered by some on the other side of the aisle, a, you know, an uh, you know, an intrusion on the prerogatives of the executive will, you know, trying to go further than that, saying, let's make this a term appointment that's uh, nonpartisan, nonpolitical, that's just a, a technocrat or, you know, somebody with professional background, and that's all we care about, I think would be a very tough sell right now. It might be desirable, uh, you know, from a, a good government point of view, but politically, I think 
tough sell. You tipped me before we went on the air about an internship bill that you are introducing. And I would love to have you come back and talk about that another time because you've already been generous with your time. But I have to ask you before I let you go about the warning that you gave me before we went on the air (laughs) about somebody that, that you have at the house there with you, Jerry. So, uh, I uh, have a parrot. His name is John Adams. And when he hears me downstairs talking like this, he gets all excited. And so if you heard some funny um, mumbling, screeching, uh, hellos, uh, that's him. We've had him since 1977. Uh, Parrots live a long time. And uh, in fact, the bigger the parrot, the longer they live. And he can sing, bark, cough, call the dog, answer the phone. Uh, he does. Uh, he he can whistle the theme song to Close Encounters, the movie, uh, and uh, he's a character. So uh, we kind of have you know having had him so long, we don't even hear him. But in case your listeners were wondering, what is that? It's not some relative I've got locked up upstairs. It's our parrot, John Adams. For all of the functions that you said he performs, I don't hear anything in there that indicates that he'd be qualified to be director of the Office of Personnel Management. And all I have to say about the fact that you have a parrot named John Adams, Jerry, is of course you do. Of course you do. (laughs) It's great to talk to you, Jerry. Thanks for coming on the program today. And happy holidays to you and everybody. You can read more about the OPM legislation and the FedRAMP bill. Sadly, no pictures of John Adams in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing it. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Coming Monday, the new administrator of the U.S. Digital Service, Mina Shung, the chief information officer of the United States, Claire Martirana. Tomorrow's show includes the CIO of the Army, Raj Iyer. That show debuts tomorrow afternoon. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.